The Bible passage for today is from John chapter 4, from verse 19 to 26. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. This is the word of God. Well, thanks for being here on Father's Day. You know, there's lots going on. Families get together, so on. So appreciate you coming here. You know, my own dad and my mom, they traveled to Bermuda for many years. My dad worked as a, in the Board of Education as a cleaner, then later as a stationary engineer. So he uh, added up his weeks, you know, and by the end of his uh, time there, he was getting six weeks a year. So he was doing all right, and he would save up his money, and he always paid cash, and they would go to Bermuda for six weeks. I always wondered, Dad, how the heck do you do that? How do you pull off six weeks in Bermuda? I'm trying to get one week somewhere. He's got six weeks. He's a good saver. But anyway, they went there many, many years. My dad would go to Bermuda. He liked Bermuda. He liked the British kind of, you know, the history of Bermuda. They traveled to other islands as well, but they really liked it there. And he had, he had kind of a Bermuda hat, kind of a wide brim hat they would wear down there. So I had a dream last night. I had a dream, true. And my dad was talking to me, and he had on his Bermuda hat, and he looked like he was in his mid-40s. No kidding. Mid-40s, wearing his hat, calling me son. He always called me son. Hey, how are you doing, son? So that was my dream. So maybe it's because of Father's Day, my dad showed up and reminded me, hey, all's well. I got my Bermuda hat on. You got a good time ahead of you, son. Don't worry about it. Anyway, that's my story. My little Father's Day story. Kind of cool. So we've been looking at, we're in the middle of the season of Pentecost, right? So Pentecost runs uh, after Easter, and it runs for 50 days, Pentecost. Well, that's not quite true. Easter season starts for seven weeks, and then Pentecost begins, but we're in it right now. And that picture by Sharon uh, is meant to depict the flames that are above the heads of those in Acts chapter 2, and each receives the flame over their heads, and they start speaking in tongues. So that's Sharon's focus there. So here we are then in the season of Pentecost. We've been looking recently at, season, at text in the Old Testament. 
We looked at the text from Babylon when the children of Israel are in Babylon and they receive a text from the Lord, text speaking of the Spirit, the vision of the dry bones coming together. Remember that? That's the work of the Spirit and the breath of God breathing into them and they all come to life. It's a pretty cool story. And then following that, they come back from exile and they go back into the land and now they have the task of rebuilding. And the particular rebuilding, the temple. And we have that text we looked at last week, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So the effort finally was successful and it was a challenging work. There weren't that many of there. 40,000 people in the whole country came back, faced a lot of resistance, opposition, but they did build the temple. So that's the last couple of weeks. And now today we're going to jump into the New Testament and look at John 4, uh, the story of the woman at the well. We'll review a bit of the story and then speak to the end where we have the mention of worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth. But it's interesting that this... Um, story takes place in Samaria. And remember, we're talking 2,000 years ago in Israel, people did not travel a whole lot. They were all walking, right? They didn't have cars. Most don't, didn't have horses. Horses were very expensive. They weren't even available. So pretty much everybody walked. And the, let's see if I can get there, there we go. So we have Judea here, and we have Galilee up here, and in the middle is the area known as Samaria. And they're different provinces. In Samaria, this middle group there, that area, was an area that had been um, populated by the Assyrians following the Assyrian Empire. And one of the ways they took over countries was they removed the people, shipped them somewhere else, I've read stories that the Russians are doing that to Ukrainians, shipping them elsewhere. And then they brought in their own people, and those people started to marry and have families and so on. So Samaria was an area that was not Jewish, okay? They were considered cousins, but not good cousins, bad cousins. Do you have any of those? Uh, I have all of my cousins are mostly are in Ireland, so I don't know if they're good or bad, really, but probably they're all great. Anyway, they, they didn't get along with the Jewish community. And part of it was actually the problem of the Jewish folk, because in the rebuilding of the temple that we looked at last week, the folk from Samaria offered to help. You go back and read the stories, and the Jewish people didn't want them to help. And that created a big rift. And so it ended up that in around 400 B.C., the Sumerian folk built their own temple, and that's where they worshipped at Mount Gerizim, which was in the middle of Samaria. So there was a big divide. So much so that when Jewish people, including Christ at many times, when they um, traveled from Judea, they would cross the Jordan and go up the other side and come back into Galilee because they didn't want to travel through Samaria. This time around, Jesus takes his disciples and they go right through the heart of Samaria. So they're going into land that, you know, that, that was not part of Israel as such. They had their own governor. They were a different group. 
But Jesus takes his disciples intentionally into that area, wanting, in his own way, to meet people and to bring the kingdom of God, bring the message of the kingdom of God, the gospel, to those people. So remember the Great Commission, the people, the disciples are told to go all, to go into all the earth. And the first group that's mentioned apart from Israel is Samaria. Go into Samaria. So you have to position then and think in terms of Jesus and his disciples in an area that wasn't necessarily friendly and they could well meet some opposition. But Jesus often refers to Samaritans, the good Samaritan. Here we have the story of the woman at the well who's a Samaritan. So Jesus responds to the person who is other, the other. Walter Brueggemann says that we live today in a crisis of the other. And what he means by that, our people are traveling all around the world, ourselves. People are migrating from all over, immigrating from all over. When folk come and notice that Canada passed 40 million people this week. Did you see that? 40 million. It's going up rapid, rapid. And when we do that, people are coming from all over the world. So they're, and they typically land either in Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal. That's where typically they land. They may spread out a bit, but a lot of folks stay right here in Toronto. Brueggemann calls it the crisis of the other. And what he means by that is that the sameness that we've all experienced, no matter where you're from. You, you know, I came from Ireland. I was born in Ireland. Well, in Ireland, if you go to Belfast today, there's a sameness to that city. People look the same, basically. If you're from, oh, I don't know, the Caribbean. I was in Dominica not that long ago. Well, you know, most people in Dominica look Dominique. There's, you know, the tourists are white, like me, but the folk who are there, they're Dominique. There's the sameness. Come to Canada, there's not a sameness, particularly in Toronto. He calls that the crisis of the other, meaning we have to figure that out. All of us. We live in a, in a, in a city, in a country, where, you know, there's a lot of differences. There's a lot of diversity. There's a lot of variations in, on many, many levels, and the story speaks to some of that. So that, that's, you know, one of the challenges that we all face. Not the sameness that maybe you had when you grew up in the city of Toronto. So all of us, that's all part of this story. So considering that, where do we see? So they go to Samaria. It's a new beginning, and it's a new opportunity. In some ways, Jesus probably liked it, but because you know he wasn't really, he wasn't received real well in Judea. The Pharisees <laughs> did not like this upstart guy, who was considered a rabbi and a great teacher, and he hadn't even gone to a decent school. He hadn't gone to a school. So Jesus was not received well amongst his own people. He goes into Samaria, new opportunities, new beginning. So there's a conversation. You know the story probably. Jesus, after this journey, they've been walking and we're told that he's tired and he's sitting by the well of Jacob. 
Jacob's well, that's where Jacob met Rachel a long time earlier. That well, people went there to draw water from this deep well. The well is there still today. I've been to that well. You can travel to it. Still there. Jesus is tired, which is kind of interesting, considering if Jesus is the Logos, Proverbs 8, he's the one that God used to bring all creation into order, and here he is in his humanity, tired from a long walk, hot, worn out. Just like you and I can be, worn out. There's Jesus, tired, resting, and thirsty. That's the point. And a Samaritan woman comes along to draw water. So you remember, there's no power pump here. There's just drawing water. So you've got to wind the water bucket all the way up, and it's some 60 feet down there. It's a long way. That's a lot of effort, so you've got to remember that. Samaritan woman bringing that well. I don't know if the farm where we have it, we have a well, but the well has a pump. Pump knocks it up. If I had to go out there and do this every time I was there, I wouldn't be all that happy, right? So I'd be looking for a pump. I need a pump. Where's the pump? You go find one. Well, this woman is drawing it up. And Jesus, surprisingly, asks her for a cup of water. The the Jews and the Samaritans had nothing to do with one another. And beyond that, a man would not speak to a, a woman that he didn't know publicly. That just would not happen. But Jesus does. And not only that, he asks her for a drink. Well, he doesn't have a cup with him. And she sees that. And so she says, if you go back and read the story, well... I don't, I don't really get that. You, a Jew, are now at, talking to me, a Samaritan woman. This does not take place. And not only that, you are asking me for a cup of water. What's up here? That's how the story is going. And then Jesus kind of throws a curveball, and he says, well, if you knew who you were talking to and knew the gift of life, then I would tell you about running water or living water. That's the term, living water. And this water is an amazing water, so you will never have to thirst again. So he says something which is rather ambiguous, right? She didn't get it, and we wouldn't have got it at the time either. But what it does is it makes her curious. Jesus often used this technique. Chapter 3, he's talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is the wealthy, important Pharisee who sits on the Sanhedrin, who comes to see Jesus at night so no one will see him. And Jesus says to him out of the blue, you have to be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, well, how can that happen? How can can you be born again? So Jesus would ask these tricky questions that would draw in the listener. And so the the woman here, the Samaritan woman, is captivated by this question. Why? Because she wants to know where the living water is. Where's the running water? Maybe there's a stream around here that she doesn't know. Tell me where it is so I can go get it. That'd be a whole lot easier than getting this bucket up every time I want to come. When we've been in Bolivia in a variety of places, we've, particularly in the Chagas effort, we were places where there was no water. These, these homes were, had no water. There were no wells, no water. So every day, someone from the family had to go way down into the town, which was not close, 
like several kilometers away, to get some water and bring it back. They had to do that every day. That's how they got it. They had no water. So they were happy just to have a piece of land. And it was adobe buildings. Big Pig was welcoming us, like this guy was huge. And every day they had to go get water, right? Down a big hill. When we first went to see it, Yvonne, who was with us, is yelling, Do are there any dogs here? Perros, perros, any perros? Because he was worried about it. A lot of people have dogs, and the dogs were used as, as guard dogs, and if you went up the wrong place and the dog came after you, you were in trouble. The guy said, no, no, we're okay, no dog here. Then we went up. It's kind of interesting. But anyway, no water. Where's the running water? So Jesus then enters into the conversation with, with the woman. So what do we have here without draining the whole story? What we see is that Jesus is at home with whoever he's speaking to. So he's at home in chapter 3 when he's speaking to Nicodemus, and he's at home when he's speaking to the woman from Samaria who is one of the other, and he is quite happy talking to them. So just as Jesus is happy to speak with us, there are no strangers. Everybody is seen as a neighbor. Part of Brueggemann's statement on the crisis of the other is can we learn to see the other as neighbor and not as enemy? Can we see them as neighbor? So Jesus has the ability to welcome everybody, to welcome every person, to welcome you, to welcome me. Paul Simon, I referred to it, has a new album called Seven Psalms, and he has this line, which I quite like, the Lord is a meal for the poorest of the poor, a welcome door to the stranger. That's his line. The Lord is a meal for the poorest of the poor, a welcome door to the stranger. So are we a welcome door to the stranger, or are we an enemy to the stranger? Jesus is at home. Secondly, Jesus crosses over, obviously, many barriers here to speak to this woman. I've named some of them. The social barriers, religious barriers, racial barriers, gender barriers. Crosses over all of that. Jesus was a risk taker. Remember, when the disciples come back, they are aghast. What is our Lord doing talking to this woman that he doesn't even know? The, the text tells us that. They are like really surprised. And they start talking about it, right? The 11 guys come back. They were in town looking for some meal and food and bringing it back. And when they see Jesus talking with this woman, hey, hey, what's going on? So Jesus crosses over many barriers, takes the risk. You know, so it talks to us, what about us? Do we take any risks? Are we ready to cross over some barriers? Jesus, our Lord, that's his example for us, right? And thirdly, we see that the woman represents the other, and Jesus receives the other. So we can ask ourselves, well, then who is the other? For your, you know, I won't ask you to say for yourself who that is, but who is the other for you? 
Who is the other? Who represents the other that you have a bit of a hard time with? Not like you. Don't act like you. They don't look like you. Talk like you. Who's the other? How do we welcome the other? I'm a little concerned about this because it's interesting. CBC has been running articles on talking about the divide in the U.S. and how they are so other, anyone who is the stranger, but how it's coming above the Canadian border. Just last week, CBC had a large article on it. I copied it. Maybe I'll talk about it at some point. But the church is saying, you know, we don't like the other. We don't want to receive the way other. We're, we're not welcoming them. And the concern is, well, if that's coming across the border, then how are we going to respond to that, those types of issues, people who are not like me? Twenty years ago, if you had AIDS, a lot of people would not even talk to you. They'd keep distance from you because you had AIDS. Right? There was a thing about it. I remember my first church where I was at it, one of our... Leaders was talking about it. If you had AIDS, well, that's a judgment from God. I mean, like that, which is rather harsh, right? I certainly don't see it that way, but that's how it was kind of chatted about. Today, 20 years later, we don't feel the same, I think. But we do feel perhaps the same way when it comes to gendered issues. The LGBTQ group, family, folk. How do we respond, right? Who is the other? So the churches have to wrestle with that more and more and more. That's just the way it is. Can't pretend it's not, right? How are we? We say receiving grace, giving grace. Well, that's easy to say. Not always so easy to do. How do we receive grace and give grace? So what is our response to the other? Well, Jesus is showing us an example, and it's interesting, there's a famous welcome text from Galatians 3.28, there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And there's a bunch of welcome texts in the Gospels in the New Testament. Receive everybody. <laughs> Receive everybody in love. I mean, those are pretty big categories, right? Jew or Greek. Slave or free, male or female. Welcome. So we need to do some work and be thinking about that. How do we receive the other? Talk to myself. How do I receive the other? Man, in Belfast in the old day, they, even the Protestant Catholics wouldn't even get along. They were at each other. They built a wall right down a certain section of Belfast to keep them on either sides. If you were walking down the street, you couldn't tell if that person was a Protestant or a Catholic. By looking at them, they looked just like me. But nevertheless, they raised all kinds of barriers and said, well, they're Protestant, these are Catholic, right? That's an other, right? How do we respond to the other? It's a simple example. Other examples. So Jesus responds to the other. We must see that when we look at this text. That's where this text is coming from. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. 
God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus starts introducing the work of the Holy Spirit. That's where we're going. So it's interesting here, the Samaritan woman talks about place. She sees worship as about place. Place meaning we worship on Mount Gerizim, which is in Samaria, at our temple that we built. And you guys worship at the temple in Jerusalem. You worship down there, place. So she sees it as place. You come to church, this building, and you worship here. Now, if you thought that was the only place you could worship, well, then that's a focus on place. We know we can worship beyond this place. Jesus responds and says, it's not about place, it's about person. It's the person of God, to worship in spirit and truth. And he's going to go on to explain that. True worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. What's that mean? Well, it's not about place. It's not about your place down there and my place up here. And in fact, he says, there will be a day when where you worship in place is not even that important. It's about person. We will worship God. We will worship him in a, in a true relationship. So in spirit has a twofold idea. In spirit is first of all small set, small s spirit, meaning your spirit, my spirit, your essence, my essence. You have a spirit. You know that, right? If you see a dead body, they no longer have that spirit there. And you know. The light in the eye is gone. No spirit there. So spirit is, first of all, in your essence, in your true self. We worship God from that place, okay? Your spirit, my spirit. But then there's also a big S spirit, which is the spirit the Spirit of God. So we worship in spirit, my spirit, and in God's spirit. We sang about it, come Holy Spirit, come meet with us. Spirit to spirit, person to person. We worship in spirit. Place no longer matters. You can worship God in spirit wherever you are, all week, all year, it wouldn't matter. You can worship in spirit. And secondly, we worship in truth. And truth here is not about your theology, your doctrine. That's not the point. It's about truth, bottom line, your ultimate encounter with God, your true self to God in truth. Mean, don't play games. Not about wearing a facade. Not about how I present myself to everybody else, my false self. Forget that. Ultimate truth, worship in spirit and in truth. The true you. You know when you're talking about the true you and when you're talking about a facade, how you want to come across in a certain conversation, how you want to be perceived. That's not the true you. The true you is that little boy or little girl way down deep in your heart and your soul that you remember that person who rises up, this is the true encounter. Truly knowing God. Do you see what I mean? Truth, worship in spirit and truth. In fact, we are told that God delights in this. Note verse 23 at the end. God delights when we worship him in spirit and truth. When you really show up, 
Stop playing stupid games. God knows about all these games, and he doesn't like it. He wants to know you. Worship the Father in spirit and truth, verse 23, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. It delights God's heart when we will show up and be real. That's our whole journey, really, is to be real. To finally face him as your real self. Be real. Beyond labels. Be real. And God sees that all around the planet. He delights in that. That's why, you show, that's why you're created. You're created to discover who you really are and to bring yourself to God. That, that's what it's about. God is spirit and we must worship him in spirit and truth. It's interesting, the Greek order here is spirit is God. And what the word is in the first place, that's the focus. Spirit, John writes, is God. God is spirit. Spirit, meaning he's not material, he's not corporal, he is spirit. And you worship him in spirit, true self to God. That's the invitation. So we're talking about run to the Father today, right? But we must remember that God is ultimately spirit. God is not male. God is spirit. Encompasses male, female. He is spirit. The best of all of that, that is God. Ruach, Ruach is feminine. Spirit is Ruach. God is all of this. And we are to worship God in true self. Nice text here. Out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit which believers in him were to receive. And I could go on and on. John's gospel, chapter 12 through 15, 17, is full of references to the spirit. God is spirit. We are to worship him that way. Pentecost, to know God in spirit. So going home, what does that mean to us? Well, your true encounter is to be with God. Your home. Your home. Your true home. My true home is not 108 Lloyd Manor. That's a building, a house that I've lived at, and a bunch of people have lived in that house before we ever got showed up there, and they will live in that house after we are gone. That is a dwelling place that right now we're in. But your home and my home is beyond that. Our home is to know the creator of the universe and how he is revealed in his son, Jesus Christ, and how that is expressed to us now through the indwelling of God in us. That is your home. But we get stuck and we think that everything else is our home. Yeah. Get attached, right? Attached to whatever we have. I can get attached to my guitars. What do you get attached to? Liv, I know sometimes you've been attached to your cars. You love a good old Studebaker. We get attached to stuff, right? What's our home? Secondly, our existence, breath, ruach. You breathe in and you breathe out. That's the image for the Holy Spirit. 
we began with the text from Genesis 1, right? The spirit, Ruach, brooding, hovering over the waters in the creation of the earth. Breath. So here we are all, right? All of us. The other for all of us. And we all breathe the same breath. Everybody. So our true existence is in God. Our true encounter is with God. Our true existence is with God. And our true enablement or action is with God. To live your lives not apart from God, but let them into your heart and let them into your interests. Let them into your activity. We're created in the image of God, male and female. Let them in. Let them energize you. Fill your heart. Fill your heart. Whoa, the woman at the well, where is this running water? I want the running water. And of course, you know how the, the story ends with Jesus. He, she says, well, I know one day the Messiah will come and the Messiah will teach us about everything. She, he says, the one you're speaking to is him. He's the Messiah. You know what? That's the only time Jesus reveals himself until the very cross that he is the Messiah. Who does he reveal it to? The woman at the well. The other. That's who is told. She's so excited. She runs back to town and she says, come and see the guy who has told me everything about myself. But he welcomes me. He receives me. And what happens? They all rush out to meet the guy. Samaritans, right? They're the ones who receive Jesus. And then they say, please, please, don't go so fast. We want you to stay. And he stays for two more whole days to engage them. I'm sure the disciples are saying, what the heck are we doing here? Let's get back to Galilee, home. Jesus just stays there. And then they say, before we came out, because you told us about him, now we know him. And what do they say? He is the Savior of the whole world. That's how they say about him. The savior of the whole world. In whatever way. Spirit moving all around. The spirit is Jesus, right? The spirit is Jesus. We're told that. The spirit is Jesus. Jesus is the spirit. They use those same names interchangeably. But we know the spirit is also the spirit. But this close affinity... All around the world, the Savior of the world, the one who will be life to you, encounter, existence, enablement. We are just touching the surface of God. Just touching. In everyone, down deep, it's percolating up. And your job is to receive that. Be aware of that. Let that out in your life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.